to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCPod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Robert Willey, who is an operating partner of Emil Capital Partners as well as CMO of Cherubundi. So Rob, I'll, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Cherubundi and what you guys are building? I appreciate Blaine. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, who is Cherubundi? It's a really good question. It's a question that I will first ask you. Before talking to me, had you ever heard of Tart Cherry Juice? I've heard of Tart Cherry. Uh, I've heard of a bit, a little bit in the, the health space. So when I saw you guys, it kind of like jumped out. I drew that immediate conclusion between tart cherry and now there's a juice and a product around it. But other than that, I didn't have too much insight into, you know, what the beverage is. I haven't, I hadn't seen it, that sort of thing. You're not alone. Uh, which is, I think my job is trying to figure out how to tell people like yourself about tart cherries and, and more importantly, write about Cher Bundy. But the reason why I ask is I had the same exact question you just asked me three years ago, which is tart cherries. What's tart cherries? Cher Bundy, who? I never heard of that that company at all. And so when Emil Capital asked me to join the leadership team at Cherubundi, you know, we had to establish, truthfully, our own, you know, DNA. We had to figure out why people should care around tart cherry juice. And the the short answer to your question is tart, uh, Cherubundi is an all-natural sports nutrition company. And we base all of our products off the power of tart cherries. It's, we call it nature's secret weapon. Now, tart cherries are scientifically proven to enhance and improve recovery. Recovery in two ways. One is they improve your sleep, and two, they reduce your inflammation. Scientifically proven to do both those things. So whether you work or work out all day, tart cherry juice really does help you recover in a number of ways. And the proving ground for that, which I discovered when I joined, which I still tell everyone about today, right, is, so when I came to the company, it was nationally distributed. We had been through a, a pretty large Series A. It was established at the grocery slash retail level, which is a huge, you know, honestly, accomplishment for the previous teams. Like, to be able to reach that type of distribution, often direct, was unheard of for so many companies at our stage. That said, most consumers hadn't heard about it. And yet the, the, the real truth and the, the, the thing that convinced me that tart cherry juice is for real was we had at that point 250 
we now have over 400 teams who actively purchase our product every month. And when I say teams, I mean collegiate and professional sports teams. So every NFL team, every Power 5 conference team, near every, every MLS team, every team that you see on TV play Saturday or Sunday, purchase our products every month. And I was like, wow, this thing must work. So why don't I know about it? And that's where, you know, my journey with the company started. That's where we still are. You know, we thankfully have made a lot of steps in the right direction in the past three years, but that's who Cherubundi is. That's what we're set out to do is really bring natural recovery mainstream. And, you know, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity in front of us. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up in terms of the bones of the business that were in place. The fact that you guys already had this crazy retail distribution that was already set up. You had, um, like you said, professional sports teams already consuming the product and like initial, I guess, product market fit, you might call it on, on the consumer end where consumers sort of know about Tart Cherry. I actually, I think I heard about Tart Cherry probably on Huberman Lab podcast. I don't, I don't know if you listen to them, but um, but uh, that might be a cool, a cool forum because I, I think Andrew talks a lot about Tart Cherry and the benefits of it, but I didn't know it in its uh, CPG drink format. Um, so that's really exciting that you had those like bones in place, right? And it seems like you guys, you came in at the series A level and now your job is CMO, you get in there. So what are your first moves other than starting to ask the questions just like you asked me, okay, what is Ch Tart Cherry? Who owns it? Like, what is your, when you land in the brand, like what are your, what's your first mission as CMO? Yeah, my own philosophy. So I've been fortunate, right? To come into a number of companies you know, it mid to high growth stages, right? Companies that have established brands. So I, you know, ran marketing at Method. You know, I was the VP of marketing at TaskRabbit. Um, I was the CMO of Spring with a late stage fashion e-commerce brand. Like, so all of those brands had done some of the groundwork by the time I arrived. And Method had done a lot. TaskRabbit had done some. Spring, very little, but was at least had users had, you know, a, a really strong user base, had revenue. And so when I came to Cherubundi, it was a familiar sort of environment for me. You know, there was a business in place. It wasn't great. Some of it was working, some of it wasn't. And so after kind of understanding the business and understanding the consumer, which I think any good executive needs to do, I don't care what department or what sort of team you lead. You then, for me, it was kind of like, okay, I, I actually start to try to diagnose what's wrong, you know, and because usually those are the places where you got to stop spending first. And in my career, I'll be honest with you, people have brought me in because they need something fixed. And so that's usually the case with executives. Turnover happens, particularly at the CMO level, because something's not going right. And usually that something's really expensive. You know, marketing costs money, right? And we talk a lot about it, but, you know, the thing I try, and try to diagnose early on is there's this saying, it says marketing is the tax you pay for being unremarkable. And as a marketer, I, early in my career, I found that sort of offensive. You know, one of the executives at TaskRabbit said that to me. And at first it kind of like sort of hurt my feelings. I was like, wow, is that really how marketing is, you know, perceived? But then as I started to think about it, I, it's true. You know, the, more, the, the less remarkable you are as a company, as a brand, as a product, the more expensive it is to convince people to use it. And so usually that's where I'm like, okay, why are we so expensive? 
what 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 are we not very remarkable about is it is it the product is it the brand is it we don't have the right audience is our messaging not right maybe our media plan is just you know misdirected and so that's where i start and usually the 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 goal is to get all of that noise to be as quiet as possible so you then can say okay but what's right and finding what's wrong you usually find something that's right too and so then you sort of shift to say okay now that I've got some of the wrong to be less expensive or less loud or less problematic, I can focus on the right things because those are the things we now need to grow. And those are the things that take longer. Those are the things that are harder. And those are the things that you generally want to use as your strengths. And so that's a little bit of my philosophy is, uh, is coming into these companies. Now, you do that through right building relationships with your team, you know, collaborating across the organization to diagnose those things. So I think having a little bit of a learner's mentality, being curious around those sort of areas are super key in terms of like your bedside manner. But that is my general approach. No, that that makes a ton of sense. And I think just putting that like executive hat on and really understanding the business, the market, and then coming in and doing the diligence and figuring out, okay, you know, what what are what are we getting wrong? Because it's always easy to come in and like look at a situation and be like, oh, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. But also like like you said, being able to say, okay, these are the things that we're doing really well. So like let's lean into those. So when you when you got started with Cherubundi, what were the things like I think you had mentioned it in um, you know, in terms of they had relationships with teams. There was kind of like this big tailwind in market about like health and fitness and nutrition products. Um, maybe you saw some upside in the whole concept of Tart Cherry, the fact that people are using it. Maybe it doesn't quite have that mass consumer appeal. So maybe that's a, like a nice market tailwind that we're going to see and be able to ride into. But what were the things that were wrong that you were like, we need to quiet these down right when you stepped into your, your role? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we were working really hard on actually, which I know is part of every good startups playbook is paid social. Paid social, right? You know, every good young startup does a couple things well if they want to be successful. Paid social is one of them. Generally PR is one of the other ones, right? Search marketing is part of that. Uh, and then ultimately you have to drive email or retention. And if you can get those systems in place early on, usually at least have some revenue, you have some retention, you have some LTV, right? Your LTV CAC ratio starts to like at least look a little healthy and you got something to go on. And the funny thing is when I got to Chair Bundy, one of the things we immediately realized is that paid social was not working. It was not working. And it was not working for a variety of reasons, but it was expensive and it wasn't working. We're like, okay, let's, let's, let's quiet that down. It's driving traffic, but none of that traffic's really converting. So what else is wrong? Our D2C business was wrong. You know, we didn't have the right products, the interface, the design, the UI wasn't right. We look like a brochure site for a juice company that was trying to then sell products. And none of that from a user experience obviously was panning out. So we said, okay, we gotta, if we want to have a legitimate website, we need to then diagnose how to build a real storefront. And that goes everything from like, right, homepage and PDP design all the way through supply chain and fulfillment to make sure that we have the right product assortment and that kind of stuff. But that was two of the areas I was like, whoa, this, this isn't working. It's not supporting our online offline business whatsoever. 
because you know grocery lives in this in the aisle in the store so it's actually not going to hurt distribution and it's not going to actually dramatically impact sales so let's quiet that stuff down and figure out what we should be doing now I will say this, the two things I discovered immediately in doing that, right, was, okay, we're going to have to make some investments in those things. Those are longer lead development programs. We are committed to a D2C business. Let's do that, but let's be patient. Two things I discovered while then seeing, okay, a little bit having more visibility was like, one, we have a very strong community. So we had a, we had a great AOV, we had high retention even though our website was absolute trash. And I'm like, these people love our product, love our product. So let's engage them. And on the heels of that, we're like, let's, let's start an email program. We didn't even have an email program. Like let's start email. Email's like retention 101. So we're like, okay. And we started, so that was great. They started, you know, open rates, click rates, site traffic. It was the lowest hanging fruit. We're like, good good, let's, let's just continue building a system of emails, retention emails, you know, of course, win back emails, you know, cart, all that stuff, email systems. And those sounds easy. It's actually, it's a grind. Email marketing is a grind. It's worth every dime you spend in it, but it is a grind. Putting in the right tool. We use Clavio, put in Clavio. So we're like, okay. The other thing I realized, I was like, we have an Amazon business, a legit Amazon business that is getting no financial support whatsoever. Somehow it was at that point, hundreds of thousands of dollars in Amazon sales with no Amazon spend. I'm like, this is a pay for play game. I know this. We need to bring in, you know, we need to allocate, basically you take the paid social money, put it in Amazon. And with then we saw Amazon, like turn the lights on and like, just like on fire sales. It was like no one had ever discovered paid media at the company. And then they all of a sudden turned it on. It was like the light bulb just went, it was incredible. So we're like, wow, great retention, high loyalty and within our existing community. And then we actually can use Amazon to drive a lot of revenue right now that it was completely unrealized. And so that's, that's the exchange, right? That's the diagnosis that we started to unpack very, very early on in my tenure at Sherbundi. Now, the other thing was, like I mentioned, was sports, right? We had these huge teams. And so, I'm, you know, I was fortunate just by way of timing, right? I was spending half my time in Portland and half my time in New York. And our sports team just luckily was based in Portland. I inherited them. They, their names are Dan and Todd. They are the most amazing two guys. They've been with the company for 10 plus years. They have like been through it all. They've built this from one team to now nearly 400. And so these guys had tons of background for me. I'm like, why are we selling this? And how did that product get made? And like, who put that system in place? And they just gave me a lot of guidance. And like I said, the cross-functioning of teams and learning and being curious helped me quickly be fast friends with those guys. And, you know, like I said, they still run the business today. And Nonetheless, I was like, what do you guys spend your time on? And they're like processing orders. And I'm like, I don't want you doing that. I want you taking orders. I'm like, and they're like, yeah, we also have to track orders. I'm like, you don't need, 
why? They're like, because we got to tell our teams. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean tell the teams? And they're like, well, we email our teams. We call our teams. I'm like, oh my God, they have tools for these things. And so I'm like, we need to build you a sales portal because you need to be out selling. On average, when I, when I got here, they, on average over the past, you know, the previous, whatever, seven years, they, they were averaging about 30 plus teams a year, you know, 30 new teams a year. So every year they would add 30 new teams. And so we sat down and said, if we take all of this administrative work out and we let you guys just sell, let's add 50 teams. And you can use the bandwidth to go out and acquire new teams. Now, get, keep in mind, like COVID's thrown everyone's life in chaos. So they're like, have you noticed that like the world's not playing sports? And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. We're going to use that time to build this portal. We call it the Pro Shop. So we built them a login-only, sports-dedicated storefront for teams to go in and log in themselves, get their team pricing, and order the products directly. And then, you know, fast forward. By the way, they've already surpassed 50 teams like a long time ago. That, like, that, that was the easiest goal we've ever set in place. And they made it sound like it was like, going to take a miracle. And so anyway, that's turning up the volume on sports, turning on Amazon. Those are the things that we started with. Yeah. And what, what I really like about this is just kind of your perspective is coming in as an executive. And I think this gives like a really good um, sort of example for other operators who are like thinking about it. They're growing from like the seed stage, the A stage, and then, you know, it's like, why is that executive hire so important? And it's because they can kind of come in, see things from the perspective that you're seeing them and understand where there's opportunity to tap into in the business, understand what's working well, what's not working well, where there's processes that can be automated, which processes aren't worth continuing to invest in, which can be scaled with technology and how to just round everything together. Because like you said, you came in, you were touching everything from product development to supply chain, from marketing messaging to email capture to Amazon business, a little bit of everything, right? And I think a lot of time marketers, they just think of it in terms of performance, but really it's, you know, like you said, it's, I, I love that, the tax you pay for for reaching your audience or or what, what however you called it. but. I think that's really important for just people to understand what the role of an executive is, is when they come in, there's going to be a business, a business is already there, it's existing, you have different parts of it running. But the question is, how do you quickly decide what's working, what's not working, what can be optimized, what can be automated? Um, and it seems like you were able to do that very cross-functionally and, and very quickly. Yeah, I think, you know, in working with founders, right? in any stage of the company, which I've been fortunate to work with some of the best. And particularly, you know, I worked with Eric Ryan at Method, right? And Eric's gone on to do now so much more than just Method. Um, and, but what you realize when you start to talk to, you know, founders like that is like, they have a genius. There is a genius there. They're not good at everything. In fact, they may not be good at very many things but they're really good at something. And my job, and I think executives jobs, as we start to come into companies to help this growth stage, is to identify what that genius is, 
And you usually do this in the interview process and the getting to know you process because you should, coming into the job, have a sense of what that is and have a lot of candor about if that is a way, you, there is a way you can help. But if you're like, hey, this is your genius, and guess what? I'm a perfect sort of puzzle piece to your genius. I then say, okay, I can operate over here. And that's the way this thing fits. And I've been fortunate to have it fit like that, where I've worked with either existing executive teams or founders who need my skill set. And my skill set is that, you know, initial diagnosis and a lot of fixing and certainly a ton of growing. But it's a hands-on approach. Uh, and that's the way that, you know, my style works. And so I think, yes, coming in, I was given the opportunity, frankly, at Sherabundi to have lots of runway, to make a lot of unilateral decisions about what was working, what was not working, to change, you know, allocations of spend, to influence innovation, right? To frankly, really, I won't say demand, but definitely challenge supply chain to make improvements or optimizations to facilitate Amazon growth, because everyone knows Amazon is an ops game as much as it is in a marketing game. You know, D2C had all sorts of challenges with unit economics, which every D2C company, big or small, seems to have around shipping small parcels around the country. Like, those things are hard, and they demand other parts of the organization. So, you know, me being in the mix is was particularly sort of is my way, and the company gave me that sort of lifeline to be successful. Now, I think the other thing that I would say is my particular points of view is one, yes, coming in and doing what we've talked about in a hands-on way and, and trying to, you know, be very quick to gain some wins. I think every executive needs to understand that, that like you need some quick wins. Startups aren't patient. Investors aren't patient. So you, the, the, not only do you have to identify, but you have to correct. And you got to be able to point to some pretty quick, small even wins to showcase that like, okay, impact is being seen and felt. The other thing we took a hard look at, and I think this goes out to a lot of the startups because every, all of us, you know, at every stage are facing this is what's the strategy to win against the giants? Because I don't care if, you know, you're Sarah at Gem or Cherubundi. Uh, me at Cherubundi, like we're fighting very big companies, right? We have basically the David and the Goliath sort of scenario is real and it's no more real than in sports nutrition. You know, whether you walk into the aisle and you look at sports hydration or you go to Amazon and you Google any one of sports supplements, right? Like it's a big world. Yeah. So, um, Rob, why don't you give us a little little sort of tour or overview of how you how this world works of like nutrition right like who are the biggest players um you know what are your challenges and how do you like you were saying as a series b company in like the david goliath sense how do you knowing that landscape and knowing what the what the landscape looks like how do you kind of chart your own path to grow beyond series b up through the ranks yeah well <clears throat> so once you like stabilize, legitimize, you know, like I said, the early stage playbook, right? You get those channels at least functionally working because 
you can't compete with anybody if you don't have a sound paid social paid search at least a little bit of call it founder pr you know uh uh, already sort of working within the business. But once you then decide, okay, who, who am I going to fight against? Because my hope is as you've built a small business, you know what you're fighting for. Cherubundi is fighting for all natural recovery. We are fighting against synthetic science. Now, who's synthetic science in our categories? It's pretty obvious. Like you walk into the store, you're going to see a lot of neon green, a lot of like electric blue, you know, all of these products, they, they clearly did not come from nature. And you can, you know, Gatorade's in that mix, body armor's in that mix, muscle milk's in that mix. Like, it's not hard. They own all the shelf space, by the way. Like, there's nobody else there. And, you know, Powerade's got a little bit of a play in there, but they're all the, you know, look at the ingredients. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, whoa, I can't pronounce most of those words. And I'm betting most of them weren't made in nature. So that is not necessarily who we're fighting against in terms of competitors, because we're not in the hydration game. But we are in terms of understanding synthetic science. We are in terms of educating people around ingredients. And they control that narrative. You know, the war on sugar isn't our fight to fight, right? Everyone's been, I mean, that, that, that fight's been going on for decades. And so for us, though, that is, for me, where I start, <clears throat> is understanding the cultural conversation. Because that, to me, is a far more interesting sort of approach and saying, hey, we're a CPG brand in food and beverage. We must fight food and beverage. Consumers don't think like that. They, you know, they have a number of preconditioned sort of thinking thoughts. You know, I, I, I have an eight-year-old, right? He plays every sport under the sun. He's living his best life right now. And guess what? After every game, Karen's, they bring Gatorade. Like from that age. And I remember that as a kid. Like, he is predisposed to <clears throat> that experience. And so that is the cultural truth. It's not like, oh, you know, fight sugar. It's like, no, actually, this is a behavior that for order for us to win, we have to change. And then you identify like, oh, a whole bunch of occasions. And you see behaviors and you understand the cultural social conversation. And right, like that's your truth. That's who you're fighting against. And once that is how I've tried to identify in every one of the companies that I've worked for is to look outside first, see that conversation and see how we fit. You know, I was watching a TikTok the other day and of course it was like a Ted talk or some sort of like, you know, my feeds are all filled with that type of like corporate inspo. <clears throat> but the con but the comment was super interesting because I think it's a, it is exactly the difference in which big companies and small companies go, I think, deal with, think about social media, but in general, go to market. And the thinking was like, there's two ways to think about, you know, your marketing plan. Are you trying to pay attention? Or are you just trying to get noticed? And like this idea of paying attention is a far more interesting way for me to think about my job.
which is all I want to do is pay attention. I want to listen. I want to, I have all these feeds. I'm far too old to be on TikTok. You know, I'm there, I, I'm there for the show. I'm not there to be making videos, right? And so, you know, for us, for me, our strategy is, is very much about like watch and learn, then think about how we can be interesting. Yeah, I think, I think that one part you mentioned that really stands out is the fact that you're saying, um, you know, not just pay attention, but also be realistic about who your consumer is and the fact that you are battling the status quo, right? So you're almost like breaking it down and saying, okay, we know who our ideal customer is, right? Like, how are they actually consume? Like, what is the status quo in practice? Like you, you had just said the status quo in practice is a dad who's showing up to their sports league, who's been drinking Gatorade his whole life, who's like, here, have some Gatorade. So now the question when you're thinking about marketing is like, okay, if that's one of the use cases and that's an ICP for us, how do we enter that conversation? And how do we replace the Gatorade that he's been like bringing the sports league his whole life, right? And like you're saying, even in professional sports team, Gatorade has been a mega sponsor of all these sports leagues for the longest time. I grew, grew up watching basketball, watching every sport, and you see Gatorade on the sideline, you see all the athletes drinking those Gatorade drinks. So with that in mind, you know, how do you enter that conversation knowing that it's an uphill battle, knowing that that's the status quo, but knowing, hey, that's my ICP, they have these specific values and maybe the recovery, the natural recovery, being healthy, being able to be in better shape for their next go at it, uh, all of these different things you can really tap into to know all your different ICPs, all the different places that they live and start building out into those use case, telling those stories and gaining market share that way. Yeah, you work backwards, right? And I, and I get that's this whole idea of like culture first sort of approach is yeah, you have the realities of these titans of industry living in all these places for decades, if not longer. And then you have the realities of how consumers consume. And you're like, okay, where those overlap, I need to identify and be choiceful, be disciplined about picking my spots. And then, yes, you know, as you establish product market fit, as you spend into those to test and learn, you start to see some opportunities, right? And that's where, you know, Cherubundi began in my, you know, my tenure. That said, I will, I will say this. Cherubundi went through a period of time where they thought the right way to fight industry titans was to emulate them. You know, it's no secret, you know, we sponsored a college football bowl game. You know, the internet has history of it. It's, we also had a large TV deal with ESPN. We had, uh, you know, spokespeople in the media. We had uh, a number of deals with universities for signage at, you know, football and basketball games. Like, we, we rinsed and repeat that strategy that every one of those companies that you just mentioned is on every sideline already. And I, I can... I believe the strategy was sound, which is go deeper in sports. Utilize our sports credentials. We're a recovery sports nutrition brand. Cool. Let's expose this in ways that, you know, we can be really take a strong stance in. You know, that's a seven-figure, eight-figure strategy that is difficult to create distinction because of you have these bigger brands spending nine figures doing it. And you're like, 
this feels hard. This feels like a means to an end. This feels like a never-ending like spend to chase this down. And it's really hard at that time to measure, which also drives investors crazy. You know, you're spending with these big properties doing these flashy things and measurement? Eh. Wow, that sounds like, you know, in my world, that's a real quick way to, you know, be done with, you know, that strategy. That's a, that's a strategy killer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just as a startup, you can't necessarily, you're not going to have, you're not going to be capitalized and you're not going to be able to spend the same way like a conglomerate can. Right. But I think what's interesting about your guys' perspective is the fact that you guys did that. You developed some of those relationships, that brand marketing in place. And then when you came in, you were able to like actually spin that up and say, Hey, wait a minute, we have this sports angle. If we invest in community and we do things other way, we can, we can take this investment that we made and really capitalize it. So why don't you walk us through a little bit about what that next stage was like when you understood that, hey, we've done all this spend um, getting our name into the sports world and now we have these sports teams. Now let's leverage that as a marketing flywheel where we can, you know, really through community and through other avenues outcompete the the way other conglomerates are thinking about, um, you know, what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, you go back to what I said, like, what what do we have? What did I like? discover besides the power of tart cherry juice when I got here, right? Community, Amazon, right? I'm like, okay, okay. We got some good stuff. Now I see the strategy, frankly, that around communications that just, you know, feels not like a great fit for us to compete in this category based on what I'm seeing in culture. So how do we do this different? And so what we did very early on, we were like, okay, we know we know the biggest barrier to trying tart cherry juice and falling in love with Cherubundi is education. Just like you, you kind of heard about it, but you didn't know really what it did. You didn't know the benefits. And so we had to go out and educate people around the juice, let alone our brand. And so we're like, okay, how do we do that in a way that isn't about reach and frequency? Because we can't buy enough of that in media. And so what we did was we invented what we call the pit crew. The pit crew is our influencer slash ambassador initiative. It's a collection of now well over a hundred uh, thought leaders, registered dietitians, athletes, uh, scientists, nutritionists, a bunch of people that frankly know what they're talking about, live and breathe tart cherry juice in our brand did so well before I joined here, by the way. So all I had to do was go out and talk to them. You know, we called the dietitians from our university teams and our sports teams and said, hey, you want to join us and do this? We just need to make some content. You know, we went out to the scientific and the medical community and we said, hey, can you write some facts about this stuff? You've done a bunch of research. Can we use some of it? You know, and so it was an education initiative that we just built straight grassroots with people who are already part of our community. And that's what we leaned into. Now that takes time and you gotta do it right, meaning content obviously does matter. You need to make the right stuff. But we did it in simple ways and then we took it and we put it in paid social. And that's where we learned that paid social is a thing. It was wrong because what we were using was wrong. And so content-wise, creative-wise, it was wrong. Strategy, it was right. So. We took that, made content, then put it into paid social, and then we started to see it. And then, by the way, also, we refaced our Amazon pages with more recovery messaging, 
with better content. Started to see Amazon grow and optimize even better on top of that paid plan. And so it was just kind of the thing that fed everything. And then we refaced our website with actual user content. And you see it today, right? Those are real people, right? Those aren't models. Those are, yes, some of them are influencers, but those were already people that were part of our community to begin with. They joined the pit crew and didn't change a thing. We just put them on film. And so that all started to coalesce. And that's something that most big companies either don't want to do, uh, decide not to do. It's hard. It's high touch, you know, and they need more reach and frequency. They need their TV ads. An army of all natural ambassadors, right, isn't going to get most of these big companies, you know, to meet their revenue goals, to make stock, to make the stock market or to make investors happy on a quarterly basis. So they're like, not worth it. And so they're out there trying to get noticed. That's all they're trying to do. That new sneaker drop, that new collab, that new PR thing. That is the game that the big brands are in. Is they're just trying to be top of mind with the sort of the PR headline of the day. And I don't blame them. But that's not the game we're in. And so it was a fundamentally different strategy that we took and still continue to use today. Yeah, I think that's that's such a good point in terms of like understanding from their vantage point, like some of the tactics that a startup is going to employ, it just doesn't, they can't quantifiably move the bottom line. So they're better off doing their mega spend at these, like this crazy scale because that will, and hey, that's, you know, that's fine for them, but it's all the opportunity for you. So that's really exciting. One thing that I was really excited to be able to talk about with you on this podcast was the fact that you have experience operating, not just in the CPG and the consumer space, but as well as the consumer services space, right? So um, anytime I see this kind of overlap where you've worked at like a major consumer services company, in your case, you were the VP of marketing at um, TaskRabbit, I would love to kind of dive into a little bit about what that experience was like, right? They were obviously a massive high growth company, uh, which ended up being acquired by Ikea, but you know, they came with their own set of challenges and um, I'm sure you had to get in there, right? Like they're, they're so for our listeners uh, who may not know, Rob, why don't you just give a little breakdown of like what TaskRabbit is? Like I've used them, I'm sure a, a lot of our listeners have, but just in case no one, uh, in case someone hasn't, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what TaskRabbit was and then what your kind of involvement there was? Yeah, no problem. TaskRabbit um, was and is today a home services company. So basically they're an on-demand app that you go in and request, say, help hanging shelves or moving furniture or assembling furniture, anything that is around, call it home services, which is inside your home. They have, uh, you know, it's a marketplace where they'll match you with someone local who will then come over and help you do that said task, right? We call those people taskers. Um, the company was founded in 2008, same year as the iPhone was invented. So it was really born from mobile. And it was by far the OG of the sharing economy. You know, they were there before Uber, they were there before Lyft or before Instacart, all of these other apps clearly that have, you know, come and some gone since that time. And they were internet famous. You know, in 2008, uh, the founder, Leah, was definitely on the cover of multiple magazines, Fast Company and all those other sort of startup pubs. And, you know, they parlayed that business into big enough to matter. And it was 
really a star example of the power of the sharing economy. Now on the heels of that, you know, came Uber, came Lyft, came ride sharing. And oddly, TaskRabbit was founded, you know, not just as a home services company, but they were really like the Amazon of services. So you could get a ride, you could get, uh, you know, computer services, like IT services. Obviously you could get your groceries picked up. You could get food delivered. You could like, it was very horizontal in its, you know, uh, services or in its capabilities. And so that was great because it allowed it to see, you know, what really people needed. But at some point, the other ride-sharing companies or home-sharing uh, economy started to come in and pick off those verticals, right? All of a sudden, Uber showed up and took over ride-sharing. Instacart showed up and took over grocery delivery, right? A bunch of apps have come in and obviously DoorDash and others taken away food delivery. And so, and those are the big verticals, you know, those are the ones that had a ton of promise. And so all of a sudden, TaskRabbit is like, uh-oh. These, these companies have leapfrogged us. And, you know, tech, before I joined, right before I joined, TechCrunch did a, a kind of a, an expose that had rabbits burning on a barbecue, on fire. Doing this sort of like, you know, behind the scenes work, trying to do diligence, task rabbit, and where had they gone? And so enter my time at TaskRabbit. And, and while I was there, you know, we really did identify the key services of the business. You know, we removed a number of verticals that were auxiliary that weren't around our value prop. We did all the things I told you we did, like same sort of real approaches. We stopped doing the things around that were expensive. We started to lean into retention. The business had been around then six, seven years. So we had a huge community. You know, we improved our quality of services so the product got better, meaning like the taskers who showed up did the thing better, did the thing faster, showed up on time, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, fast forward anyway, that was my time at TaskRabbit is, is kind of rinsing, repeating the strategy. Now, it is different in services and it is different in a marketplace. It's funny, I still... I still see a lot of marketplaces out there and I still talk to a lot of founders and I, I don't think there's a founder of a marketplace that has come or gone, you know, that would tell you that marketplaces aren't the hardest startup to do, right? Because you're building two businesses and those businesses are one, yes, you have to build supply. You do, demand doesn't matter unless you have supply and in a marketplace, particularly around services, Supply is about quality. So you better have a good driver with a nice car if you're Uber. Remember when they launched, it was a town car service? Like tons of quality, right? And if with Instacart, those groceries better be fresh and they better show up on time. And so that is one business you have to build from day one. You have to go out and recruit high quality supply. All while building an app that can match you with a consumer who has an expectation around demand. So you have to drive demand. And now you have a two-sided marketplace that have two completely different organizations, right? You have ops, which in the, in the services world is supply. And then you have marketing, which in the services world is demand. And so you're like, wow, marketing and ops, 
like are totally married together, yet they have completely different user bases. And so anyway, that, that I learned a lot about marketplaces. You know, I spent years there. The company, yes, yes, thankfully sold to Ikea. It was a successful exit. And, but the playbook honestly was very similar, right? We had to get really focused on what we did well. We had to lean into our strengths. We had to utilize the channels because we still didn't have as much money, frankly, as some of the other home services providers. You know, Angie's List is a good example. You know, uh, Postmates, right? Thumbtack. They were raising tens of millions of dollars. We were not. So same thing, young titans of industry, nonetheless, titans, big, much, much, much more capital than we had. So, you know, that there's a lot of parallels. The nuances of the, of, of the businesses were much more different. They were much more complicated. Like we just weren't putting juice in a bottle and setting it at a store and trying to, you know, set it high and make it fly. That wasn't services. And so I would encourage anyone who is interested in services to take a hard look about how those unit economics work, because it is a much different business in the way, you know, it operates. Uh, that said, I think some of the marketing challenges are really similar. Yeah. I mean, I have experience building marketplaces with my first company seated. And I think the, the, the challenge with marketplaces is kind of what you alluded to. It's like you're building these two different sides that don't necessarily have overlap. And then also you're, you're the one in the middle. So you're trying to like, it's not the end experience that the customer receives. It is your responsibility because you're the one that facilitated the transaction, but it's also like, like if you have a different service provider, in our case, restaurant that, you know, messes something up or something doesn't go well, like you're kind of, you're responsible because you facilitated this transaction, right? So I think what you said about like, you know, taking the inventory of what is our job to do? How can we make sure that our supply side is like really focused on quality so that we can have a repeatable service and like really focus on the business case and then kind of like lean into the, like you were saying, all the different things you do, doing, doing the diligence, understanding the use cases, doing the storytelling and leaning into like what's working and optimizing what's not. I think there are a lot of parallels. And then, you know, when you move into the, the CPG space with like Cherubundi, you're going to have your own set of challenges that, you know, sometimes the marketplace can handle itself. Whereas in Cherubundi, you're actually responsible for shipping product, delivering product, coming up with your own thing, being manufacturing the product that ends up in the end consumers in the, in your case body. So it's just interesting to see how, understand what the, the, the unique parts are that you're able to go after and how you can apply those lessons and how they do translate because at the end of the day, you're running a strategy here and you're applying those across different businesses. So that's really cool. And the last thing I wanted to kind of get into before we wrap up here was your role at, uh, as an operating partner with Emil Capital, right? So, um, you know, you've, like we said, you've had a ton of experience operating all sorts of different businesses. So what does your role with Emil sort of look like as an operating partner and how are you involved in, in, in everything that they do? Yeah, I, I gotta say I'm really blessed. You know, I think the operating model within, you know, venture firms or private equity firms, um, isn't new, you know, a lot of the larger venture firms have huge operating teams and the operating teams operate in one of two ways. You know, in Sherabundi, we operate, 
like legitimately operate. I am inside that company, if you can't tell already, pretty like every day. And whether it be building teams or making executive decisions, you know, it's one of the companies that I spend a lot of time with. The other part of the operating model, which is more management consulting, right, is problem solving. And a lot of the larger venture firms have teams like that that are much more consultative. They're brought in to give guidance on a particular issue or on helping frame an initiative, connecting people to a network of individuals who can help you know, remove challenges foreseeable in the future. But they're really the responsible of the executive team to execute on that. And both of those things I do, by the way. So depending on the company, there's a number of companies that I am much more consultative about. I give them guidelines. Some of them are early stage. So for someone like me, they don't need someone like me yet. They need guidance for someone like me that can tell them, be like, hey, I think you have an opportunity here. Or, hey, I think that's going to be a problem. Here's how I would think about it. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to tell you, you know, let's, let's go through this exercise of searching and seeking together. And then you solve. And that is my sort of the duality of, I think, any operating partner role at any one of these firms to any degree. Mine, like I said, I'm a, generally I'm more of a high touch operator. So they plug and play me into companies that need that type of guidance. And, you know, Emil has built this team, you know, over the past three plus years. So in the life of the venture firm and in, the, in this space, three years is not very long, right? You know, there's about 10 to 15 of us that range over 30 plus companies one way or another in both or one of those sorts of types of um, commitments or responsibilities. And on the other side of the fence, though, is the investment team. And that's the really interesting model about that ECP. So ECP's part of this like 30 plus portfolio company. One of their thesis is the future is all natural. Whether that be sustainable fashion, right? Or all natural recovery, you know, or a variety of products, you know, certified organic that they believe that that is what consumers eventually want. So they invest in companies of various sizes and stages with that thesis in mind. And so there is a through line, right? Terabundi is clearly a, a good example of that thesis coming to life. And all of that, though, is done really in the investment team. So there's the operating team and the investment team. We are separate teams. We often have tons of overlap completely different responsibilities, but it gives us a lens into them and, a, and, a, and, a, and them into us in that they start to see the challenges of operating because they're not operators, right? They make decisions most often on dollars and cents, charts and graphs, Excel spreadsheets. And as an operator, those are helpful. But every good startup, I believe, that's fighting these titans of industry I believe, and you know, this is my own personal bias, and people will tell me like Pepsi that I'm wrong, but that a chart and a graph isn't going to tell you what you should do. If it did, Pepsi already did it, right? They have ten more, they have thousands more analysts than we do, with tens of millions of dollars more. They have people studying these charts and graphs every day. Do you think little old me is going to like? draw out a graph and like plot some companies and find white space that is going to be a multi-billion dollar idea like overnight no that ain't happening 
So when I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. You, you're saying the data says that. I'm like, but if the data so obviously said that, Gatorade, Body Armor, Pepsi, Coke, someone's, someone's already tried that or they're going to be there tomorrow. And then by the time we get there, they're going to outspend us. So we got to think a little different about how to make operating decisions. And that's the sort of yin and the yang of the investment in the operating team model that really works well when you have good, you know, really sort of like collaboration between the teams. And at ECP, I'm happy to say that like there is a lot of overlap. You know, good example is we ran the hood to coast, which is the longest relay in America. We ran it two weeks ago in Portland. It's 200 miles. You run from the Mount Hood, which is a mountain range in, outside of Portland, all the way to the beach in Oregon. 200 miles. 12 of you run it. It's the longest relay in America. It took us 27 hours. 27 hours. We averaged an eight-minute mile for 27 hours. That's incredible. Like, I still, like, we have all the good feels of that as a team. We did it as a company. So it was a company cultural event. And we went in saying, this is all about team building. And that's why I'll tell you, like, team matters, as you know, as every good startup feels. But on that team, we had a number of people from the investment team who ran with us. Like, that, that kind of living in a van, two vans, six people each for 27 hours, like, you're going to get to know one another. And I guess that's what I'll leave you with, Blaine, is like, don't sleep on the people. Like chemistry, culture matters. And especially when you're making hard decisions in very fast moving categories, fighting industry titans, like you need everyone, you know, every brain in the game. And I think if you're committed to doing that as a human, as a person, and you actually can have real conversations that generally are about what's going on in culture versus what's going on in category, I think it's an interesting recipe that gives small companies like us chances to win. Yeah, well, Rob, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. The it's it's awesome to see that, you know, like I, I think what you mentioned about the relationship between operating partners and investing partners, right? Like being the fact that you guys are able to see eye to eye and like understand that you're on the same team, that that's that's really special because I I totally agree where you know, investors might be looking at something and not really see it. And as an operator, like you just kind of have to get in there and you're always stuck with opportunity costs of making decisions. It's just about where you allocate your resources, right? It's resource allocation. And like you said, the graph isn't necessarily going to point that out. And you as an operator need to be able to know where are we going to get exponential turn by real, uh, by reallocating our resources. So anyway, just wanted to thank you so much for coming on DTC pod. We learned a ton today about how to approach marketing as an executive at scale uh congrats to where you guys are at with Cherubundi. looking forward to keeping uh keeping tags tabs on your continued growth and hopefully next time around everyone's going to know all about tart cherry the benefits and everyone's going to be drinking Cherubundi. so thanks for coming on d2c pod today thanks Mike. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.